0: Listen to The Amendment Now, wherever you get your podcasts. There's a unique kind of anxiety that creeps in when people start talking about the weather these days. It's too hot, or it's surprisingly snowy, or the rains just won't let up, or the rains won't come. It feels unseasonable and unfamiliar. And the unsaid thing that hangs in the air we are in the middle of a climate crisis. Extreme weather events, sea level rise, wildfires. I'm sure you're seeing it. For me, the first time my kindergartner wore a face mask was the year before the COVID pandemic, during the 2019 fire season in Northern California, when the skies darkened with smoke for weeks. Patients flocked to our clinic with asthma attacks and panic attacks. Entire towns went up in flames and friends lost their homes. And yep, July through November here are now called fire season with go bags by the front door and displaced people on the move. According to Cornell researchers, 2 billion people will be forced from their homes by climate change this century. Many people are starting to understand that climate health is public health, that the climate crisis isn't just in the future, but now, and that it's terrifying and unjust. But so many of us still wonder what we as individuals can do to stop it, or keep it from getting worse and how to process all of this. So in this episode, let's talk about climate. What is climate grief and how do we respond to it? What happens when we think about the climate crisis in a cultural and historical context beyond just its scientific aspects? How does that change how we feel and act? And what if your power in this fight lies not in what you can do as an individual, but in your ability to be part of a collective? I'm Dr. Lucy Kalanathy and this is Gravity, a show about what becomes possible when we look at hardships differently. For a long time, I didn't talk much about the climate crisis. I knew it was happening, but I felt like I wasn't expert enough or vegan enough to comment. We're conditioned to see climate change as a reflection of our own failures. And then I started reading. The science reports were so dense and so scary that I turned to writers and historians and even poets to try to figure out how to think about them. A few years ago, I came across Mary Anais Hegler's work. Mary is a climate justice writer and podcast host. Her show, Hot Take, is great. You should take a listen. And she's built her life around talking about climate, race, justice, and emotion. Mary's writing cracks open the climate crisis, viscerally and historically. She doesn't spend much time with the science of what's happening. Instead, she writes about what else the climate crisis is. Public health, mental health, injustice. Hers is some of the first writing I read that brought a full swath of humanity to the crisis. So for someone as prolific and effective as she is, I was surprised to hear that writing was not an intentional career choice.
1: Yeah, that kind of snuck up on me, to be honest. Um, So I um, kind of abandoned writing in my 20s. Like, I really just I stopped writing because I was like, you know what? You're never going to make any money off of this and you have to support yourself. So I went full hog into like being a communications professional. And I started editing these policy reports on climate change. And they're really terrifying. And so I decided that I wanted to work on climate change because I decided it was the most important story and I wanted to be part of telling it. And this is like circa 2014. Like I, I started doing this because I thought it was the most important story, but I did not realize how dire it was until I started editing these reports. It, it really scared me to death, um, like had a lot of trouble sleeping, a lot of trouble coping, etc. cetera. Like, this is the syndrome that people now call climate grief. At the time, it had no name, and I thought I was the only one dealing with it. And so then I was like, I need somewhere to put these emotions. Um, I need somewhere to process this. And so I started writing, and it just was so incredibly cathartic.
0: Climate grief. Mary felt like she was the only one haunted by this deep, painful mourning for the world around her. But Mary had seen it herself. Hurricane Katrina had been a big turning point for her. The flooding, the devastation. Whole communities in the South, full of people she loved, were left to the mercy of the storm. And she felt a growing sense of dread that there were a lot more storms to come. But the more she wrote and the more readers reached out, Mary saw how common many of those feelings were. Climate grief can be multi layered emotions around a crisis for the planet and for human beings. Reactions to small changes in your everyday environment, the plants, the birds, the weather, or huge ones like when your community is hit by drought or flooding, or events you're not even quite sure are climate-related, a tick-borne disease, or a viral pandemic. 16 years ago, an environmental philosopher named Dr. Glenn Albrecht observed the emotional reactions of people in Australia affected by drought and coal mining pollution. He came up with the term solastalgia, from the Latin word for comfort and the Greek root for pain. He describes solastalgia as a homesickness one gets when one is still at home. It's a form of emotional or existential distress caused by environmental change. Could you talk about like what the stages of grief were that you feel like you went through and sort of where you end up or, or like what that looks like for you?
1: I, I think that the stages of climate grief are very similar to the stages of, of normal grief. Um, but there's one very big complicating factor at the end. I think I went through like a hazy sort of denial. Like I didn't go through hardcore denial. Like it's not real. It's all a hoax, et cetera, et cetera. Like that's not denial. That's delusion. Um, I went through the denial of like someone else is working on it or someone will save us, or it won't get that bad, or it's it's further in the future. Like, it's not going to happen in my lifetime. That sort of denial. Um, and just sort of, like, look, trying to work on other things while, you know, I assumed other people were working on this. Then there was, like, the sort of bargaining kind of phase of, like you know, assuming that it could still be put off and like, yeah, the world's warm by this amount of degrees, but they're still sort of, um, that can't be real. Then there was just straight up despair. I, I would have these like ideas or not ideas, but like these moments where I felt like I saw things that weren't happening. So like I would be at the beach on a normal day and I would see like a giant wave coming in or like, walking through the middle of New York City on a normal day, and I'd see a tornado coming down the street or something. Um, So, like, I would see all these disasters that I knew were on the horizon, like they were in real life. (laughs) Um, So that, you know, you can't really tell people that. They kind of think you're crazy. But turns out it happens to a lot of people who really engage with climate change. And then after the, the despair phase, there's the rage that comes. And then, you know, at the end of a normal grief cycle, there's acceptance. And the thing about climate change is that I can never accept this because I'm still here. The planet's still here. I'm still living. What am I supposed to do? But also, like, once you understand the issue, like, this is not acceptable. Can you talk about why rage? Um, Rage because uh, the earth isn't dying. It's being killed. And there are people responsible for it. Um, The fossil fuel industry knew about climate change decades ago and yet continued not only to, like, their business as usual, they actively fooled the American public and the world. So, yeah, it's hard not to look at that without getting angry.
0: Fossil fuel companies and industry groups have perpetrated a concerted disinformation campaign with a massive PR strategy along the lines of what cigarette companies employed to knowingly sell a lethal product while outright denying its harm. It was hugely effective, delaying real climate action for decades. And that disinformation, that propaganda continues now. Mary tackles emotions head on and brings grief and fury into the public conversation, right alongside her journalism and analysis and calls to action. What makes you feel like as a writer, it's really important for you to write about climate and emotion generally?
1: Because climate change is emotional. Um, It's a really human uh, subject. The way that we communicated about climate change, like pre-2018, I'll say, in the mainstream, It was with a really bad bedside manner. It's kind of like, you know, you've got a doctor and you've got this rare disease and it may be fatal. And the doctor is like geeking out about how this disease is attacking the cells of your body as though you don't live in your body. And just like really going down the rabbit hole of the science and not talking about you as a person and how this is going to affect you and your relationships and your life. And that's kind of how uh, climate change communications has been just so dry and devoid of humanity for such a long time and just all about the science and the charts. And that's not how everybody processes. I think that's something that keeps a lot of people out of the climate conversation or out of the climate movement. It's like they feel like, well, I don't know enough about how carbon interacts with the atmosphere. Girl, me neither. I am not a scientist and I'm not going to school to be one. Well, I don't have to. Right. Like I don't have to have all the answers to know that there's a problem. And so I think climate change is less a science issue and more of a justice issue. And everyone understands justice. Everyone from like the tiniest toddler understands that like he got more candy than me. And that's not fair. And justice is inherently emotional. And so if you tell me that the place I've loved for my entire life, you know, Alabama and Mississippi is going to be, you know, overcome with locusts and sinking underwater and no longer livable and full of disease, that's going to break my heart. And you can't expect me to process that from a strictly scientific objective standpoint. That's ridiculous.
0: That's one of the things Mary illuminates in her work, that there's room for both fact and emotion, and that this isn't just about science, about parts per million of CO2 in the atmosphere. It's about justice and history and power.
1: Yeah, it's not separate in the past, present, or future, right? Like, you cannot get climate change without slavery. Like, you don't get the Industrial Revolution without slavery and colonialism. You cannot get climate change without conquest, without moving people off of their land. Like, there's blood at the root of this whole thing. So all of those things are connected. And then you think about all the people who were left out of seats of power that maybe would have made us act on this. And then you look at things like um, where fossil fuel refineries are are located and they're generally located um, near communities of color. And that's true in the United States and around the world. And so in those communities like the Gulf South, like Iraq, you don't have to wait for climate change to kill you. The fossil fuel industry will kill you in real time. And then, of course, there's like all of the impacts of climate change, which fall hardest on the people at the margins. And the people at the margins systematically are are people of color, are the descendants of the people who suffered colonialism and slavery.
0: Why do you think that the environmental movement, if that's what you would call it, like has thought of itself as siloed from other movements?
1: Well, it depends on how you trace the environmental movement. I think a lot of people trace it through the conservation movement of the late 1800s, late 1900s. Um, And that's a really problematic lineage because these are folks who wanted to conserve natural places and natural spaces, but to conserve them for white people, right? So it's like the creation of the national parks, which is really just a way to like steal pristine land from Native Americans, kick them off of it, and just like allow it to be a recreation space for, for white people. Like these are people who were very anti-immigrant. These are people who were like really into the the Chinese Exclusion Act. They often, um, you know, own slaves, etc. Like these are not super woke guys. Um, a lot of these like environmental groups have their roots in that. And then a lot of people kind of trace it through. They got into environmentalism because they're into science. And their idea of science is that science is inherently unbiased. It is inherently objective. There's no possible way for science to be racist. But that's not true. Science is, is run by people. Um, there's, there was all sorts of pseudoscience that held up the ideas of slavery and segregation. I think... There's a lot of ideas in the, in the environmental space of like, I did this so that I could get away from race, so I wouldn't have to think about social issues, so I wouldn't have to think about bias. But you do. We're going to take a quick ad break. We'll be right
0: back. Meditation has helped me so much during hard times, and the meditation app I've kept coming back to is Headspace. Headspace. I've shared it multiple times with family and friends, and I'm so glad to recommend it here. Headspace is your daily dose of mindfulness in the form of guided meditations in an easy to use app. Whatever the situation, Headspace really can help you feel better. Headspace makes it easy for you to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that works for you on your schedule, anytime, anywhere. Headspace even has meditations tailored for people facing breakups, pain, cancer, grief, regret, leaving home, and more. And meditations around sports performance, focus, and even playfulness. You deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. For a free one-month trial of Headspace, go to headspace.com gravity. That's headspace.com slash gravity for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to headspace.com slash gravity. Welcome back to this episode of Gravity. The youth climate movement tosses out some of those old conservation playbooks and narratives and joins with a long-standing climate justice movement. Mary invites her readers and listeners to think about climate justice as interconnected with racial justice, gender justice, migrant and economic justice. And that means joining with those other movements and learning from people who have led and lived through them. You've also written about the fact that People talk about climate change as an existential threat, of course, and you've written about how it is not the first existential threat. Could you talk about that?
1: Yeah, so <laughs> that was probably my most controversial essay because it was I, I wrote that at a time where the, the conversation around race and the climate conversation had not matured yet. And what I was saying with that article is that people have fought for their lives before. And sure, it might not have been an existential threat to all of humanity, but to the people who were under threat, they're just as dead, right? Because I think at that point, um, one of the things that drove me really crazy about the way we talked about climate change was that uh, every story had to end with hope. And I did, that didn't resonate with me. As, as a Black person, as a person who's descended of, of civil rights activists, like, I remember asking my mother about this, like, when she was living through, you know, I, I specifically asked her about Emmett Till and how she felt as a child, seeing that. I was like, how are you not scared? And she was like, no, I wasn't scared, I was angry. Um, and that was what motivated her, that was what motivated everyone that she was around at that point. And I think That's kind of how I think about climate change. Like, no, hope doesn't motivate me. Anger motivates me. And like determination motivates me. We can look at these other times that people have fought for their lives and learn from their resolve and what kept them going. And it's not always hope.
0: I've heard you talk about how fatalism and blind hope are kind of two sides of the same coin. And that actually there's this big ground in the middle
1: yeah. I I think of that as like, you know, two types of people that you really don't want to watch a movie with because they just have to know how it ends. And they spend the whole movie trying to predict how the movie is going to end and it drives you crazy. So you have on one side, what I call the doomer dudes. Um, and these are the people who are like, it's over. There's no point. The earth is doomed. Give up now, you know, just go play, you know, chess or something. And then on the other side, there's the, like, the hopiums. You know, these are the folks who are like, it's all going to work out. It's going to be great, blah, blah, blah. And, like, I, I think the truth is uh, neither one of them knows knows what's going to happen because this isn't a movie. This is real life. And we, we are not actors. We are real people. And the decisions we make have real-world impacts. We don't know how it's going to end because because we're the ones writing the story we're probably not going to have some beautiful perfect world and we're probably not going to have like this ultimate hellscape i mean honestly what actually winds up happening is up to us and so we need to stop acting like we're spectators in our own lives
0: Rebecca Solnit wrote about hope, saying, Hope is not a lottery ticket you can sit on the sofa and clutch feeling lucky. It is an axe you break down doors with in an emergency. To hope is to give yourself to the future, and that commitment to the future is what makes the present inhabitable. Sometimes the word hope is used as a balm to avoid being alarmist. But Mary believes there's a ton of room for emotional nuance here. Room for all of us, in fact. She says, We don't have to be Pollyanna-ish or fatalistic. We can just be human. Hope can coexist with frustration and despair. But Mary herself says there is no hope without action. And just like there isn't some quick fix for other social problems, there isn't a quick solution for the climate crisis. Still, it doesn't stop people from sort of desperately asking Mary, what's the one thing I can do?
1: It seems, I understand why people ask it. It does seem like a very simple uh, question. Um, And it is coming from a place of I want to do something, which is good. Um, But on the other hand, it's an oversimplification. So what I would say is the first thing you can do is stop thinking about one thing. Because nobody would ever say, what's the one thing I can do about immigration rights? What's the one thing I can do about systemic racism? Was it like If you start understanding it as a justice issue, you won't start looking for one thing. You'll start looking for ways to incorporate this into your being. And then like once you start understanding how overly simplified that question is and that this is not a one time thing, that kind of makes it so that you don't have to get it right every single time because it's a practice, not a perfect. Um, So that sort of takes the stakes of it down and you can do something else tomorrow, something else the next day. You can do five things in one day. Um, There's so many different ways to get involved with this problem. And then it sort of becomes figure out what you're good at. And so if you are good at making people laugh, incorporate climate change into that conversation because humor is a way to get to people in a way that they're not so scared anymore, Um, that they're not so intimidated to make it more relatable. If you are good at making noise, then like be a good activist. If you are good at like organizing things, organize climate protests or organize your neighbors to like, You know, take care of one another. If you're good at taking care of people, take care of people who are on the front lines of climate change. There's so many different things that we can do and none of us has to choose, right? Like, I can, I'm good at communicating. So that's where I kind of live. But I can also go to a climate protest. I can also, like, help other people who are on the front lines of the fight. Um, So stop limiting yourself to one thing and start embracing the the world of possibilities in front of you.
0: There's a research study by climate scientists, Drs. Seth Wines and Kimberly Nicholas, showing that for individual households, the key ways to directly lower our carbon emissions are to go flight, car, and meat-free, in that order. For people with the privilege to make those changes, they're crucial, not least because those actions are contagious. But shrinking our own emissions doesn't address the unjust systems driving climate change. Understanding the climate crisis as a collective justice issue expands what individual action
1: means. When people generally think of individual action, they're thinking about like what they buy and what they use, right? So like using fewer plastic bags or growing their own vegetables and uh going vegan and that sort of thing and like all of those things are well and good but they limit you to just being a consumer so our decision to have this conversation on this podcast is a climate action and it is an individual action so like I chose to be here, you chose to be here, the producers chose to be here. Um, And your listeners are choosing to listen to it. That is a climate action. You could have done something else. Um, And voting for a climate champion is a climate action. Running for office is a climate action. And it's also an individual action. But all of these things are things that bring us together, whereas like consumer actions, it's kind of like a capitalist solution to a capitalist problem, which is just not, it's going to leave you feeling dry. I'm not saying don't do those things, just don't limit yourself to those things. Like I'm vegan, I like don't fly all a whole lot, but that's a starting point. It's not a stopping point, if that makes sense. We also should be working on toppling these Giant companies that are really the ones who put us in this place. They create the problem, but they continue to convince you that it's your fault, and it's not, it's theirs.
0: Climate scientist and writer Dr. Kate Marvel said, Climate change isn't a cliff we fall off, but a slope we slide down. Mary adds, The climate has already changed, so what's been done, sadly, cannot be undone, at least not in the near future. But there's real good to be done by not letting it get worse. Limiting the damage is good, noble, valorous even. But neither of them writes about hope per se. They talk instead about courage. I often think about this line Mary wrote, you don't fight something like that because you think you will win. You fight it because you have to. So in answer to that question, what can I do to bring about a world without fossil fuels and with a livable climate, Mary's answer is in a way simple. Do what you're good at and do your best, every chance you get, and as your full self.
1: I want to see more people. I want to see more humanity. I want to see more humor. I want to see more joy, but I also, like, that joy needs to come with action, and I think that's very possible. I think human beings are very capable of that. And I want to see more naming and shaming of the actual villains in this story. Climate change for a really long time has been treated as a victimless crime because the fossil fuel industry convinced the victims that they were the villains. In truth, it's been a villainless crime. Um, And so we need to rewrite that story. I want to see more of our news media taking climate change more seriously. And then I want to see more of this in our pop culture. Um, like it's it's ridiculous to me to see so many of the TV shows that I know and love that completely ignore climate change, right? Like how is there a whole show set in California that doesn't mention wildfires at this point? Um, and so I want to see more normalization of the conversation when then maybe more people can start to feel like they can talk to their friends and family about it. Like honestly, Talking about it is often step one, and it's a really important step.
0: Talking about it. And as Mary mentioned, bringing humanity, humor, joy. But how do you cultivate that kind of lightness when you're staring down the barrel of a global crisis? Where does that joy come from? Well, from where it always has.
1: I think one of the first steps to finding joy, or even just relief, probably if you're in the deep throes of climate grief, is to find a a community um I think that is one of the biggest uh steps toward healing in this process is knowing that you're not alone um now that I have that like we find joy together and laughing at the absurdities of it while also still working at the problem like you can take climate change seriously without taking yourselves seriously um and so (laughs) <laughs> I and also honestly for me making fun of Shell in BP is the joy of my day um, it is really fun I can't recommend it enough they deserve all the hate you can possibly give them um, other people find joy in taking care of one another. They find joy in like, yeah, it's like, it's a, I, I liken it to like the civil rights movement, right? Like I, one of my favorite books is Stokely Carmichael's um, autobiography. And they really thought that they were gonna die any minute now. And that brought with it this idea of like it cherishing every moment. Um, and appreciating one another and taking care of one another and still being able to, to dance and to laugh. And if climate activism is gonna be somber all the time, I can't make jokes, I can't be petty, I don't want to do it. <laughs> so uh, we can be somber sometimes, but like I'm gonna need to laugh if I'm gonna stay here.
0: When I first started thinking about what gravity could be, about what it could provide, I was driven by a question that a lot of people kept asking me about struggle. How do I get through this? It's a question my patients would ask me, my daughter would ask me, readers of Paul's book would ask me, how do I get through this? Every time it was a different fight, a different pain or grief or hurdle. It struck me in talking with Mary that she was getting the same question when it came to the climate crisis, to that global version of an existential threat. How do we get through this? The truth is, the first step on that journey is probably the most difficult. The first step of accepting that it's going to be really hard. That if you chart your path based on what will hurt the least, you might miss out on connection, or new ways of seeing things, or even the fullness of life. We built this show around the idea that how we think about our struggles affects how we navigate them, and we could see some common threads running through, but we never imagined how strong those threads would be, how they would connect across hardships that seemed so different on the surface. In this season of Gravity, we heard from Adi Barkin and Rachel King about acceptance and resistance. So Rachel is now four months pregnant with a girl. Should we let ALS take that away from us too? We heard from Joanna Goddard and Paul Kalanithi about meaning. It's actually wholeness that you're after. All these different parts of your life are like worth something and can and should be felt.
2: Even if you're dying uh, until the day you actually die, you're actually alive.
0: We heard from Andrew Solomon and Vivek Murthy about connection.
2: I certainly believe that the diversity of love makes for a better world. And I just look at a society in which loneliness is epidemic. And loneliness itself is actually not a disease or a disorder. It's actually a natural signal that our body
1: sends to us, just like hunger or thirst. When we're lacking something that we need for a survival, just human connection.
0: We heard from Shakina Elmore and Elena Semino about words.
1: Can I beat this? Am I going to beat this? Are we going to beat this? And then I do sort of say,
0: well, like, let's step back. Like, what do we want to do? Like, how can we reframe this in a way where you can't lose? We need to talk about this thing when it happens. What are the most sensitive ways of talking about it? And what are the different ways of talking about it? And of course, the poetry. We heard poetry in every episode including a reading by contemporary poet Ada Limón I saw a
2: mom take her raincoat off and give it to her young daughter when a storm took over the afternoon
0: an original poetry by our guest Marley Liss
2: We cannot begin to let our hearts resemble those who broke
0: them in the first place So breathe in healing and breathe out gentle compassion We're so thankful to our guests, who brought their whole open-hearted selves to our conversations and brought such nuance and clarity to the question of what it means to reframe hardship. Even when that feels like an individual endeavor, it's also always a collective one. I'm grateful to my daughter, Katie Kalanithi, who is always right behind me, figuratively and literally. Want to do another big one?
2: Woo!
0: We're so grateful to you for listening and reaching out to us. We want to wish you joy and courage. This episode and season of Gravity will close with a poem written and read here by poet Maggie Smith. It's part of her poetry collection, Goldenrod, and it's called How Dark the Beginning. This is a poem about hardship, about the ways we talk and don't talk about it and about what it can mean to be on the precipice of something difficult and new that you can't quite see yet, but you're moving into.
2: How dark the beginning. All we ever talk of is light. Let there be light, there was light then, good light. But what I consider dawn is darker than all that. So many hours between the day receding and what we recognize as morning, the sun cresting like a wave that won't break over us, as if light were protective, as if no hearts were flayed, no bodies broken on a day like today. In any film, the sunrise tells us everything will be all right. Danger wouldn't dare show up now dragging its shadow across the screen. We talk so much of light. Please, let me speak on behalf of the good dark. Let us talk more of how dark the beginning of a day is.
0: Gravity is produced by Maddie Foley, Lindsay Cradwell, and Taylor Williamson for Wonder Media Network. Original music by Rachel Wardell. Rekha Murthy is our editor. Jenny Kaplan is our executive producer. A special thanks to Amy Westervelt, Mary's co-host on Hot Take, for connecting us. And of course, to Mary Anais Hegler herself. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. And you can follow me, Lucy, on Twitter at RocketGirlMD. Please share Gravity with a friend and rate and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much.
2: Okay, goodbye.